Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Leander Otter about family therapy from an educational psychologist's perspective. Leander Otto, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you back on the show and uh, talking about family therapy from an educational psychologist perspective. Thanks again for agreeing to this and doing it. Only a pleasure, Oliver. It's always nice being um, part of your your um, show and yeah, just engaging in some content for, for other professionals also to open up the platform because I think these things are really important to talk about. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's really great. And and I, even the topic, I think we went back and forth about, you know, what should we talk about? And I think you even told us, you know, it's not as popular like family therapy anymore, but really interested to unpack this with you and just understand it. I mean, uh, over the last year and a bit, we've been speaking to multiple therapists about, you know, different the different modalities, you know, play therapy, you know, sensory integration, contextual therapy, you know, some of these things I don't even know existed. So it's been incredible. And so really, really interested to understand how family therapy, you know, fits in as well. So maybe take us through it that firstly, what does it even mean when someone says, I want to do family therapy? Yeah, so I think family therapy is a wonderful type of therapy. It's obviously a psychological intervention. Um, and I think the two main aspects of family therapy and what, what family therapy actually is, um, is focused on improving the communication between family members for the family unit to function um, in, a, in a positive, holistic way, um, and also to resolve conflicts. So um, I think also for different types of psychologists, the referrals come um, due to different reasons. So for us as educational psychologists specifically, it's often linked to parenting, understanding our children, um, you know, just sometimes just adjusting to new life change. If you just look at the, you know, the COVID pandemic um, and all the challenges that that brought in a family, you know, where, where parents and children were in the same house for a very long time, parents had to take on different roles. Um, so, in that, in, in for example, during the pandemic, something like family therapy would have been very useful, but also afterwards. So it can be new life changes. It can be just the different developmental stages, you know, with each stage for a parent, you know, starting a new job or going into your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, your own life challenges and your changes, and also children. So the different phases that they go through and the conflicts that can obviously arise in the family as a result. If we just think about teenagers being, you know, one of the, the key things that, that come up in um, family therapy as well. Um, sometimes relationship conflict. So sometimes personality clashes or due to developmental stages being different, there can be conflict. Um, and then obviously family therapy has got a broad range of the definition of family. So whether it is the nuclear family, whether it is with extended family members that are often involved in the family, like grandmas and grandpas that actually also take a parenting role, for example, in the afternoons or if a parent is ill. Um, so it's not limited to the to the um, the natural term family. It can also be with extended family members, can be with new family members um, where, where there's been separation or divorce and there's a new um, uh, family that a new family set up you know with step parents step brothers and sisters sometimes just to help the bonding process um, so for different reasons grief 
any type of, of challenge that a family faces that has an impact on the family functioning. Um, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't replace individual therapy, but it focuses on, like I said, number one, improving conflicts and conflict management, but also just communication and dealing with different challenges in a family. Okay, that sounds amazing. And I suppose the questions I was, I was, you know, like the, the ideas that came to mind for me is, is it, is it more like a mediating um, from a mediator perspective, or is it more like from an education perspective, as in telling everyone what their roles are and how it affects the other person? Because I think I think that's quite quite amazing. I, I think we we don't get this like life manual, and so when we go into like, yeah. especially having children, and I find the roles become a little bit conflicted, you know, especially with grandparents, you know, like how where does it stop, where does it end? Is it yeah. something like that? Definitely. So definitely a combination of it all. Um, so we are not just mediators as psychologists doing the family therapy because we don't just mediate. There's definitely a bit of education as well, psychoeducation. So often we'd be educating each person about the different roles in the family, um, you know, what uh, area each one is supposed to be functioning in and obviously improving that system. So also educating the children about their parents and, you know, certain misperceptions and you know, all kinds of, of um, dilemmas, but definitely uh, a role of mediating, but also educating and then reflecting and using your therapeutic um, tools and techniques that you would in individual therapy, but also do that in um, a family setup. Because if we mediate, we don't necessarily reflect, reflect each other's views so that each one actually hears the just of what someone's trying to say. So it's also utilizing your therapeutic skills um, in family therapy as well. So it's a bit of a combination. Okay. Thank you. That that kind of makes sense in my mind as well. And if I just take a step back, uh, Leander, I mean, so how? So for anyone that doesn't know, obviously, but how, you know, what does an educational psychologist do? And I mean, how how is this applicable? You know, to something an educational psychologist would do. So educational psychologists, um, as educational psychologists, we do therapy ranging from different things, whether it is grief or any sort of traumatic event, whether it's got to do with childhood development. We also do assessments um, in the form of emotional and psychological assessments, but also scholastic assessments, aptitude assessments, IQ assessments, also for the purpose of diagnosis. So whether it is diagnosing um, different developmental disorders or different um, childhood disorders, and also obviously helping to put an intervention plan in place, whether it is support for the school, giving the school guidance, giving parents guidance, um, working multidisciplinary with other professionals, whether it is referring to occupational therapists, speech therapists, um, remedial therapists. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad range of assessment, but the key lies in obviously getting to the bottom and the root cause of the challenges so that we can um, suggest and recommend certain interventions, which obviously, like I said, therapy is also then one of them. So that's what educational psychologists do. Um, we also assist uh, schools in policy development. So any form of policy development, whether it be abuse policies or anti-bullying policies, so any type of policy that falls within the scope of educational psychologists. And the key phrase there is that we work with anything related 
to learning and development. So our question is always, when do you stop learning? When do you stop developing? And obviously that's never, but um, we mainly focus on children, adolescents, young adults, parents. You also get educational psychologists that um, that work with uh, adults as well because they are specifically trained in that area. And I think that's where the key, the key comes in is where you are properly trained in. Um, and then obviously family therapy makes part of that. So where a clinical psychologist, for example, might get a referral for family therapy due to someone being admitted to hospital due to depression, and they need to do family therapy to support that person and uh, support the relationships in the system, maybe uh, these challenges in the family that contributes to the person's low mood um, might not be the root cause, but obviously contributes. So that would be something that they would focus on. As educational psychologists, we would focus on the areas linked to children, like I mentioned, the developmental stages, just family conflict in general, where there's children involved or where there's parenting involved. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. I mean, I think in my experience as well, how an educational psychologist kind of fits in. Then um, I think a really important role, especially for children, you know, to have someone like that. I think we were you know, growing up, we were unfortunate enough to have amazing people, you know, on the team. But I think for anyone fortunate enough to have that, that is incredible. Um, and in terms of family therapy, Linda, so why is it so important? I mean, the one thing I can kind of see is, like you mentioned, depression. You know, like, is there space for the rest of the that? Is that where it would normally be? Yes, definitely. Like I said, it doesn't replace the individual therapy. Um, at times, people need individual therapy. So they would need individual therapy if they are personally struggling with things. Um, parents sometimes need relationship therapy or, or couples therapy. Um, but that's not the space in family therapy to address those things individually or address the relationship problems between um, a, a couple, for example. It's really focused on the interpersonal relationships between the family members to ultimately um, strengthen the family the family functioning. So there's four key things that I can maybe highlight. The first one is that it can obviously improve and why it's important is because it can improve the communication between members. Um, sometimes it's a lack of communication or just that, you know, the key phrase that I like to use, it's not what you say, but how you say it. You know, you can either say, hi, how are you? Or you can say, hi, how are you? You know, so, and we're saying the same thing. So, Often it's just that we do not necessarily know um, how to phrase certain things. And obviously with different developmental stages, that becomes really important. You know, we can say to our teenager, oh, I don't think you should wear that, you know, or we could say to them, you know what, that top actually looks amazing on you. Don't you think that will be more suitable, you know? So communication, definitely. And sometimes just because we do not communicate about our feelings, we do not communicate about our wants and needs. And that is often also, you know, parents would sit and say, but I never knew this. I didn't know that this is how you feel. Um, because if I did, I could have done something about it and I'm sorry. So definitely communication to improve that so that there's a healthy platform and to teach the family skills on how to communicate further in a healthy way, you know. Um, 
So the second thing is to, to obviously have a bit of bonding. So to assist family with bonding, to improve the relationships, to give them skills on bonding at home. You know, today life is so busy um, and we, we neglect the family time because there really is no time. You know, um, parents sometimes really, really try, but there's so little time and just helping them to kind of identify what works for them. Because for one family driving to school in the morning could be a really nice way for half an hour or an hour, depending on their traveling time, to connect. But we don't think about those things when we're in a rush. So just helping them to see where bonding time needs to happen, because most children and even teenagers will say in therapy, my family don't have time for me. And then the parents will say, but they're in their room the whole time. So it's to help them to identify and to, to see, okay, but a teenager actually needs to be alone because this is when they're processing things. But they also need to understand that there needs to be family time, you know, for bonding. So things like that can really help. Um, the third thing is that it can obviously improve mental health. So improving mental health, meaning we are so stressed. And if the family is stressed, then the relationships obviously are affected. So it can really, really help each person's mental health not replacing the individual therapy, but it can holistically improve everyone's mental health because the family stress is less. Now, you can imagine if you're walking into the house and there's so much tension and stress because everyone's fighting with everyone, your own mental health is not good. Um, so that really helps. And then the fourth thing is what I mentioned earlier on is that it really helps to keep the family intact. Um, you know, when you think back, about your childhood years and when you are an adult, the first thing we talk to our kids about and in general is family time, you know, we'll say stuff like, I always remember putting up the Christmas tree or I'll always remember, you know, doing this or going for the Friday night, you know, movie nights or the game nights. Those are things that the good memories it's obviously not conducive and not positive to only think about the negative stuff in a family. Um, and there will be negative things. There is no way that a family will not have conflict, but it's how we deal with it. So I think the the why, why it's important for me in a nutshell is to improve all those things so that your children and you can have really good and fond memories as well. And that it can be a safe haven. I mean, if things are going challenging at work or things are going, it's not great at school, you want to go back to that safe space. And it's really disheartening when we have to go back home and it's not a safe space. You know, we, we don't want to be there. So it really provides that safe haven for everyone to return to, to know this is where I can go for comfort. This is where I can go to where I'm not, not going to have conflict, but where it's dealt with in a positive way. So mm. I think in a nutshell, that, that would be, for me, the importance of family therapy. Mm. Yeah, it's actually quite sad. People say that, you know, they it's not a safe space. I mean, I can't imagine that happening. But, you know, I mean, there's lots of people that are unfortunate enough to have that. Um, and, you know, when you covered your four points as well, uh, the four points, Leander, I mean, I couldn't help thinking again that this is like, almost like life skills. You know, like, again, life skills that we never, you know, got taught. Uh, because all of those things, I mean, it sounds obvious, but if you get it wrong, like you said, you know, it just around the communication, it makes such a huge difference. And, uh, yeah, so really cool, cool stuff. 
necessarily. You know, like I said, you know, it's really hard. Some parents work two, three jobs just to keep the children in school. And it's really not intentional, but it's different for each family to try and find those sparkly moments in, um, you know, in a family or that connection and bonding time that we don't necessarily think of. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's like with any relationship, it's about the the intentionality of it, like how, you know, like actually scheduling it in, like date nights and all of that. But family time almost must be scheduled in. What are we doing? I suppose something like that would make sense. Yeah, definitely. And that's often what we say to parents, you know, let's go back to the drawing board. If there's one hour on a Sunday that we can allocate and everyone knows that that's family time, you know, come hello, I water, that's what we do then it really helps. Um, and then it becomes part of the routine. And, and the children almost anticipate and they, they get excited and they know, okay, the week might be rough. Mom and dad, they don't really have time this week, but I know that special time is coming up and it almost becomes sacred. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I think there's something about that feeling important that you know you scheduled in. You know, whereas, like, if you you know if you don't have that time, like you said just now, in the teenagers, you know you don't have that time it feels like you you know like you encroach on the other person's space whereas if you know that's your time you know i think it makes you feel more important and stuff like that yeah um yeah, for, yeah. It's you, you're important enough to your family that they make time for you so mm, yeah mm. we have on the outline as well you know is there a particular paradigm is does that make any sense in terms of like family therapy is there like a certain way in which you work with family therapy? Yeah. So I think, first of all, it differs for each psychologist with their theoretical framework and their background. Um, other psychologists might work more from a clinical perspective. So in, in my practice, um, I work very systemically. So systemically meaning that we are, we are functioning in different systems. I function in my own system as an individual, and that's my individual challenges and my individual um, uh, things that I have to deal with and the components thereof. Secondly, is that we function within the family system. So the way that I function is going to have an effect on my family members. The way that my family members function is going to have an effect on me. Then we have a bigger system um, where our parents' jobs, for example, you know, come into play. The stress that they feel at work is going to come into their nuclear system and it's going to go into the family system. So those systems have an effect on each other globally, um, nationally, and then globally as well. If we think about the pandemic, you know, it, the effect on the country had an effect on the family system. It also had an effect on the individual, which in return had an effect on the family system. So these systems interact where, when parents have to immigrate and go to a different country or when they have to go away, you know, for work often. Um, so all of these different aspects, the, the economical um, situation in the country, that has an effect, the financial implications, that has an effect. Effect. So for me, very systems orientated and trying to understand how these things have an effect on the family system, because from that we can then see, do the parents need to, for example, go for their own individual therapy? Do the children need to go for their own individual therapy before we can commence with family therapy or joint? So it can also run and often it does run at the same time. 
Um, so for me, it's it's quite um, systems orientated. Um, doing a genogram and understanding, you know, the external family, the extended family, how that has an impact on the family. So I would definitely say uh, um, quite a big believer in in a in a systemic approach in the systems uh, theoretical framework. Okay, you use the word there, a genogram, and just to make sure, I mean, uh, it's not a word I come across often, but can you tell us what that means? Uh, in my mind, I'm getting like a mind map of like all of the family members, but is that what it means? Yeah, so genogram is just understanding the family and we do it in a picture format. So we use squares for males and circles for females, but it's basically tracking the, the system of the family, who fits in where, you know, understanding at a glance who's part of the family. So it's almost like a family tree, but just in a in a more structured way, which is called a genogram. Okay. And Leander, do you find... Um, you know, in corporates, they talk about dominant personalities. And I find in a family unit, it could be the same thing, you know, although you, I mean, you have a family unit, I find like, you know, maybe the extended family, depending on culture as well, the extended family might have an influence on how the family units, you know, like behaves. Is that captured somewhere? I mean, or is that part of the family therapy kind of process? Yeah, definitely. So, we need to understand each family member um, in detail and their personality type and, you know, um, when it's needed for intervention. So um, often there's a, do a dominant uh, personality and we, we talk about the golden rule of the readiness to change. So is this person ready to accept that I might have a dominant personality and what do I need to do about it? We don't want to tone it down or take it away completely but just how to utilize the dominance um because there's always a hierarchy in family we need to obviously assess it and we need to work with it but also help the, the people understand what that dominance can do what is the pros when is it great you know when does a family need someone to say come on guys this is enough let's let's do this or let's work or talk about this or let's work around this and when do you need a dominant personality to take a step back and go this is this is not the time now to be dominant so definitely um, and external factors obviously that come into play sometimes grandparents that really see from an outside perspective and sometimes they are really onto something you know sometimes they do see something that the mom and dad doesn't see but where the boundaries need to be um, because the, at the end of the day the parents are still the parents and sometimes that causes conflict because grandma says uh, mom must do a b and c mom says no and then this child there's conflict for example you know so definitely also working around that and sometimes it means sending the grandparents for their own little bit of a therapeutic process and sending the parents for a bit of a therapeutic process to solve that um, sometimes it happens in family therapy where one can address that you know, if if the, the readiness to change is there, you know, if there's still a lot of resistance, then we know that the resistance is just a bit of a mask because there's first things that need to be dealt with. I'm smiling because I can't, yeah, that picture of sending the grandparents for therapy must be quite interesting. <laughs> I think from, from a personal experience point of view, it's like almost the grandparents forget that they were once parents. It's like they, they seem to have a very different system to how it works with the grandchildren. Uh, it's yep. interesting. I, I would yep. love to see if it works for us like that, myself and my wife, I mean, at some point. <laughs> but, uh, do you find that as well? Uh, or am I just talking, you know, like maybe it's just an isolated incident? Very true, very true. Like I said, sometimes grandparents can see certain challenges 
because they have years of experience that the new parents don't necessarily see. And then it's harder for the new parent to accept there might be a challenge. We need to put intervention in place, you know. So that, I think, is valuable. But sometimes there are when boundaries are overstepped, you know, where certain grandparents will say, but I will take the child for therapy or I will do this or I will do that. And the parent's actually not consenting to it, you know. So there's there's always challenges around that that can also arise. Um, but at the end of the day, I always say the grandparents have got the, the, the grandchild's best interests at heart. Otherwise, why would they fight for the parents in the first place, you know, unless mm. if it's just a control issue, which is a whole different story. Um, but in general, it's because they really care. And if one can tap into that and get them on board to help them understand that this is what's best for the child, it's not necessarily what you think. It's also maybe not necessarily what mom thinks, but here's, a, here's what we actually need to do. And most of the time they get on board. And that's why I said, you know, sometimes just them also understanding when do they, when are they overstepping boundaries, um, that also helps a lot. So, yeah, definitely. Mm, okay. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on this as well, because obviously you probably see this, you know, the, these type of cases. But I saw a post where they said, you know, it's obviously you have to almost, you know, filter how much you tell kids, uh, you know, children about certain things that are happening, you know, like like the economic scenario, because they obviously can't deal with everything. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, you know, from a mature, you know, everyone wants to do the best for everyone else. You know, we as adults or parents or grandparents, you know, we do that, you know, our kids would never sometimes understand, but they need to know. Do you have, I mean, like, is there a, is there a Leander Otto rule around that or is there you know, a general mature way of doing this? Yeah. So I think it comes back to it's not what you say, but how you say it. But I think this is the only time where that rule needs to be bent a bit in terms of it's also about what you say. So um, you would, for example, not feel comfortable telling your six-year-old exactly how babies are made and the whole process, but you will tell them that babies are formed in mom's tummy and, you know, what the general process is. You will also not necessarily have your six-year-old drive past the accident, stop and show them what had just happened, you know. So it, it, it's, it also comes to what your gut tells you, but there's definitely a developmental stage that needs to be considered. You know, is this child ready to hear A, B or C? Is there certain information that they need to know? And in general, let's take, for example, COVID, you know, um, certain certain parents felt that it would be okay to explain everything to the children, expose them to all the news um, without realizing that it could have actually in increased their anxiety, you know, but at the end of the day, they still needed to know about the situation. So again, just how you say it, you know, educating children that there is this disease that's going around. This is how we can protect ourselves. It can cause A, B and C, but this is what we're going to do to protect ourselves or whatever. So it's it's really just about how you say it and what you say at what stage. And if you are unsure, there's lots of information available. There's obviously educational psychologists or other psychologists that one can contact just for a bit of guidance. But my rule is always, you know, the gut. The gut is quite strong. And if you are unsure, rather get the help, you know, rather pocket for there and say, I will come back to you and just process it and think about how you can package it 
to them. But yes, I think things like financial pressure, you know, children don't necessarily need to know that there is not money for bread yet. We are waiting for payments to come in, you know, kind of thing, because they're already dealing with a lot of stresses that, and that's an adult stress. Can they know that we need to save? Can they know that we shouldn't, you know, waste? Of course they can. So indirectly, we are, we are telling them that there is a bit of a challenge, but we're not giving them the information that will actually cause harm to them. So I definitely think the the stage that the child is in or that the person is in, as well as just how we package it. Mm, yeah, I think it kind of makes common sense or it is common sense kind of thing. But I think when you're in that moment, you know, you probably don't think about it, you know, clearly. Uh, so I thought about that. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, like you said, development stage as well, in terms of how much you can share. And I think it's like with everything, you know, like what you say affects the other person, what happens around you. Sometimes what you don't say as well affects them. So um, it's always being mindful of that. Um, going back to from a family therapy perspective, is it important that you have everyone on that, what is it, the genome, the, you know, uh, on that diagram? in that family therapy session? Yeah, so I think for, for me personally, it's important to know who plays a key role in the life of the of the um, child or of the in the family. And if there's external members to consider. Um, because sometimes, like I said, if you if you don't know the relationships between everyone, um, you're not going to know if there is extended family members that are, you know, living with the family or that's having an impact um, on the family. So definitely all the family family members that play a key role are very important. And also people that maybe are deceased that did play a, um, a significant role when it comes to, for example, grief counselling, you know, um, grief therapy in, in a, a, a family setup. That would be very important. Okay, sounds good. I always like to ask as well, and and the reason I do that is, you know, one of the aims of the show is obviously to shed light on the topic. And so, so someone that doesn't know about family therapy can say, uh, that actually sounds really good. I like what Leander said. Um, so I always ask the question is like, so if someone wanted to set up a session and they come through for their first session or first few sessions, can you paint the picture of how that would normally look? Yes. So again, every, every psychologist is different and they follow a, a different um, therapeutic process. For me, it's always important to get the background and to, because if the family is there and there's a lot of emotions and a lot of stuff happening and everyone's just saying, you know, what they feel and there's no kind of rules and boundaries and guidelines, it becomes a bit of a challenge. Um, so firstly is to get a bit of background from each family member. So I would initially have a session with each family member and kind of just hear their heart and hear what they feel are the strengths in the family, what they feel are the challenges in the family, what they feel needs to improve. And everyone has got their opinion of what they think is wrong in the family, you know, what, what they think is the cause or the root cause of the challenge. And sometimes the children, for example, will say, um, you know, in our family, we don't listen to each other. Whereas the parents will say that it is there's behavior problems, you know. So I need we need to understand from each one's perspective why they feel family therapy would be important. What do we need to address? But also if they say they don't think it's important, because that's a, then something also that we need to think about. You know, why do they not see the same problems that everyone else is seeing? So that is important. And then 
we arrange the family therapy sessions where we start off. So for me, the first session is always very important. That's the session that we, the family um, connect. That's the session that the family establishes rules and guidelines for the sessions. So parents might, for example, say that, um, you know, we, we're not going to swear, for example. The children might say we need to take turns. We need to listen to each other. So we, we set up a, a basic foundation um, and a bit of rules and, and um, uh, boundaries. And we, we put that up and we take it out every session to remind each other these are the rules. Everyone agrees this is what we are sticking to because it's, it's a lot easier to give a framework because otherwise everything goes, you know, and that's, that's an order, that's a, a, um, a position for chaos. So that's very important. And then to establish the, the, the goals of the family together. So often I would then reflect and say there were things that we discussed in individual sessions. Would you be willing to share them? Can we talk about these goals? So we don't delve into the challenges just yet. We just set the goals. Um, and then often we would give a little bit of homework, you know, so give a reflection that they need to go and think about to bring with to the next session. But the, the beginning stages of family therapy are very uplifting. We first need to tap into strengths. We first need to set the boundaries. We first need to um, strengthen the bonds before we can delve in. You know, it's almost like going to swim in a pool, but there's no boundaries. You know, there'll be water everywhere. There'll be a flood. So we first need to create a, a really safe space for the family um, to be willing to open up. Um, so that would be the initial stages. And then we work through the different stages of addressing conflicts, you know, educating, um, understanding each person's roles, understanding each person's position and their view um, before we obviously delve into the root cause of all the of all the challenges. So, yeah, a lot of clarification happens in that um, process, a lot of reflecting, um, helping each other understand the goals and the way forward. Okay. I think as you explained that, that was like actually very systematic. And there's obviously a process, but I can't help but think this is a short process, obviously a long process. Is that true? Yeah, so it can be. Sometimes if it's um let's say for example, it's a it's it's just a little bit of communication, there's no no severe challenges, it's not necessarily long-term therapy. It could take a couple of sessions and things really go a lot better. Um it it, it depends on each case. So the more complex the challenges are, the longer the process takes. And the key thing for how long it's going to take is the readiness for change. So is everyone really ready to accept responsibility for the challenges, accept their role in the, the contributing factors, and are they willing to address change and work together? If that is positive, then the progress is normally quite good and quite quick. Okay. that's That sounds really promising. Because I think, I mean, yeah, I think everyone wants really quickly. So you know, it's, a, it's nice to clarify that too. But like you said, I like that, you know, that, that ability to change or willingness to change. I think willingness is better. Um, and Leander, you, you mentioned individual therapy. Uh, and I want to ask around like a multidisciplinary team. Is this normally part like, of a bigger team of practitioners? Or would you see normally the practitioner or the family just on your own? 
again, that would be case specific. So in general, if it is not a very complex situation, um, one therapist or one psychologist is normally sufficient. But when it becomes a little bit more uh, challenging or there's a lot of components to to, um, consider, having a co-therapist, which would be, for example, another psychologist. Um, Sometimes I've worked with psychiatrists before where we join in on the sessions where, for example, the children are seeing the psychiatrist for medical intervention um, or the parents' psychologist. So sometimes it could be the different psychologists that are assisting the the individual members that come together, which obviously means we need to prep and plan in advance. We don't just, you know, go to the session and we we just take it as it comes. We need to obviously um, discuss certain things. And obviously the the patients need to give consent for that. So, yes, having a co-therapist often helps especially if it's a larger family um, because it's it's very it's already in a one-on-one session it takes a lot of concentration and focus and tapping into that person and reflecting and being aware of them now you have more than one person and you need to do the same on on individual level so it often helps to have a, a co-therapist like I mentioned that in general or psychologists it could also be psychiatrists it depends on the case if it is for example um let's say for example there's a child that has a diagnosis of cerebral palsy or something like that which is a physical component sometimes working with an occupational therapist in a session to bring them in to shed some light on the um, diagnosis or the the therapy that they're doing um, just as a as an expert in the field Um, that obviously can also be done so definitely multidisciplinary uh, but in general if it's if it's more linked on therapy it would be a psychologist or at times even a psychiatrist Sorry, uh, again, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, it's like, a, it, it seems almost like group work, you know, it's like, a, and, and lead, it just leads to the next question as well, is do you find it mainly in a setting, like hospitals and stuff like that, or do you find it in private practice? Um, does the group work comment kind of make sense? Yes, definitely. So, both. So, in clinical settings, so in hospital settings, it would, like I mentioned earlier, be someone that might have been um, admitted or have been diagnosed that attend a a clinical facility for therapy, because a lot of psychologists have um, rooms at a clinical setting, uh, and then it would happen in that setting. But if it is in in private practice, it would be different reason for referrals, or often the clinics will refer to a private practice for this type of therapy. So definitely in both settings, it just depends on the reason for referral. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think what you said earlier in the discussion, you know, around normally you find it in the clinic kind of setting or something to that effect, you know, kind of, you know, it's in my mind as well. Um, and in terms of training for a practitioner like yourself uh, as an educational psychologist, is there a particular training that you go through or is it more about a, a specialization? You know, it's like more, obviously, the more clients you see around this, you know, obviously, the more skills you pick up. Because I think, you know, as part of your ed- academic background, you know, I think everyone gets trained on lots of the things that you normally use. Is there something like that? 
Yeah, so as a rule of thumb, um, if it is part of your coursework when you are studying, which is normally in your master's, um, as educational psychologists, depending also on the facility, um, you get trained on it. There's a, there's a whole module in your master's year about family therapy, and educational psychologists are quite well known for family therapy uh, because it normally involves children, parents, which falls directly into our biggest scope. Like I said, our scope is not limited to children, um, but we often find that we work a lot um, with children and adolescents and young adults and new parents and parenting. So, yes, in our coursework, it is covered um, depending on the, the university or the institution, but that still is not enough um, for training. So we do a lot of CPD training, especially if you are very interested in the field and if you have a passion for family therapy, you know, I would strongly recommend getting more training in it. And there's lots of CPD courses, specific people that do training um, regarding family therapy. So, so definitely doing more training on that. But yes, it is covered for, for most of the universities in the coursework as an educational psychologist. Um, as clinical and counseling psychologists, we would need to obviously look into their training for that. But for educational psychologists, it is normally covered. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. That actually makes a lot of sense. And uh, I like how you said it as well. You know, as, as long as it's in your coursework, I think that's a good rule of thumb. And I never thought of asking that. <laughs> I will bear that in mind going forward. Um, and and I suppose in term, I'm leading to the next one, which is the tools. I mean, I, I know like educational psychologists you pay a fortune in the in terms of the different tests you need and and things like that um with family therapy is there anything that you need other than more chairs and a bigger room i suppose yeah so i think your um you know just to quickly tap into that is your coursework definitely but the coursework also doesn't cover everything so we also need to to look at you know if it wasn't covered in your coursework i think i would rather want to put emphasis on the fact is it in your scope so is it in your scope of practice with the HPTSA? And if it is, then you always have the opportunity to do external training. So if it falls within your scope in your training of, you know, all the years that you study psychology, there's not time to do everything because there's just so much. So I think, you know, definitely going for the external training if you are interested in it, if it falls into your scope. Um, so that brings me to the tools, you know, that's your first tool to answer that question mm. is do you have the knowledge do you have the skills do you have the confidence to practice in that field number one knowing that you are providing an ethical service because it's in your scope and because you have the training so i think that's your biggest tool that you need um, in family therapy is um, your training and your expertise in the field or your knowledge in the field um, so that's the first thing. And then the second on or second part of the, the question to answer that is based on the psychologist. So I work from quite a solution-focused background. I also work from a, an arts background, so creative expressive arts therapy. And to incorporate that, especially if you have a family working with kids, kids don't necessarily enjoy just the talking therapy. When we're adults, you know, even they enjoy the arts process as well. But so the tools need to be case specific. Um, and, and I work from that uh, approach. So to try and find a solution 
that obviously the family come up with. So I would say your theoretical framework is your next tool. And the physical tools that you then need is a conducive environment. So that should match your type of therapy. If I'm doing creative expressive arts therapy or using that modality in the family therapy, I can't just have chairs and not a table with the arts material, for example. Um, if it is a bit of play that you're going to incorporate, do you have that in your, in your room? Do you have the play therapy tools? So your tools really are dependent on the type of therapy you use, and I think your tools should match that. But if you have the training, you're working in your scope, you're already halfway there, then it's just the additional tools that you would need for the type of therapy that you do. Okay. That sounds really cool. I like the word you use as well, you know, the, the whole one around ethics. And I know I didn't include it in a brief, but I always like to ask this question as well. I mean, are there any ethical considerations around working with family therapy? And the one that I can kind of think at the moment is, you, you know, you mentioned the different, you know, sessions you're having with each member of the family. And there might be certain things that you can disclose or you can't disclose and stuff like that. Can you think of, of oh, firstly, does that make sense? And then secondly, I mean, is there anything else that you can think of around the idea of ethics? Definitely. And I think for me, that's why the individual sessions are important, because they need to give consent that you are allowed to share that in the family therapy uh, setting. So in general, if it's something that you as psychologists feel would be very important for the family to know, we always try and work it through with the client so that they get to the point, and I'm not meaning multiple sessions, but in that session to try and help them understand the importance of sharing it. However, they might not, that readiness for change, they might not be ready to share that information and then obviously ethically we can't disclose that to the family unless if it is something that breaches confidentiality so our general breach of confidentiality meaning that there's harm there's something happening physically harming emotionally harming someone is in danger we are concerned about their safety then we explain to the client that we have to talk to you know the the correct people about this because we are ethically obliged to do so but other than that really respecting that they might not be ready and often you know i have had whether whether clients then have said in the family therapy we are now ready to share that and then you know we open that uh, up in a in a very respectful manner uh, so yes definitely adhering to the ethical considerations and like i said the second part uh, or part or uh, portion of ethics is just remaining in your scope always doing what is ethically correct are you trespassing or overstepping a boundary that's not in your scope you know is it more clinical matter that needs to be referred to definitely those would be the two is adhering to your ethics but also adhering and respecting the 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 ethical considerations of the clients or the patients okay um you know you mentioned scope of practice a few times now and i can't help but asking this question now as well is there a way that you check this i, I mean I, obviously i'm not a healthcare practitioner so but you know each one of the practitioners has their own boards and i'm, I'm assuming the board guides you on what your scope of practice is so you should know it so essentially right Yes, definitely. So um, the HPCSA, which is the Health Professions Council for um, Medical Practitioners and Psychology falls into that scope. There's very clear definitions for each and every um, professional on what they are allowed to do and what not. Um, also, obviously, that's how their training is set up in the university. So those, you know, go hand in hand. So if if we need to look at 
the ethics are is someone allowed to do family therapy one would need to look at that specific occupation look at their scope of practice with the um hpcsa and clarifying that okay that makes sense um i think we're on to the last few questions now or if not the second last one <laughs> but um is there any books or resources that you normally recommend to your clients? And I, I would expand it a bit further and say, because there's practitioners that listen to this as well. And, you know, that obviously want to say, okay, I actually want to expand my practice or I'm in within the scope of practice, but I want to expand it into family therapy. Are there any books or resources that you normally recommend? And you can answer that either from a, you know, from a patient point of view or family point of view and you know, maybe from a practitioner point of view as well. Sure. So the first one is not always to listen to everything you read on Google. That's the first thing I tell all the clients and the patients. <laughs> it's amazing. We all use it, but we need to use it wisely. Um, so it really, again, is very case specific. So let me first talk about the client's perspective. So it depends on the situation of the family. So there I would recommend reading sources for the specific challenges that they are experiencing. If it is with regards to the fact that they don't understand each other's developmental stage, I would specifically recommend certain things and not necessarily have a list that works for everyone. Some parents need to know the, the straight facts and others need it packaged in a different way. So I would then recommend different things. Sometimes it's with regards to diagnosis. So if a child, for example, has been diagnosed with autism and now we need to work in the family, um, I would recommend that they do readings on that, for example. Um, so really case specific. So there's not just one thing that we recommend um, for, for the clients or for the patients. And then as a professional, um, there's also so much out there. You know, there's great recent trainings. There's one book that I'm still hanging on to um, for a very long time. I mean, my training was over 13 years ago, uh, 14 years ago, 15 years. We're getting to that now. <laughs> but, yeah, so this, this I still have the fourth edition, and I'm quite sure <laughs> there is <laughs> ones as well. Um, but it's called The Practice of Family Therapy um, by Hannah. Uh, and this is such a practical, um, you know, guideline. It gives all the theoretical background but summarized so wonderfully. And it really looks at all the different phases of family therapy, all the different steps. Uh, you know, it really gives you a very, very good baseline. And it's something that I refer back to often. Um, you know, if, if you reflect back after a session, hmm, okay, I think I need to go and double check this or I need to go and read up on this or just to uh, refresh my memory on something. So this is really a very, very good book that I can highly recommend. Um, but there's also lots of articles. So again, specific cases. So for a general overview on family therapy, Hannah is my go-to. But in terms of case-specific family therapy content, I like to do a bit of research. So I would do the case conceptualization, which is key. Um, do the timeline of the family to see what impacted who at what time as a family, um, affecting the family, and then going and reading up on the specific dynamics, um, whether it is then that I need to read up again on the systems approach. Do I need to read up on the the um, the family approach, whatever it is, uh, different aspects of the family, whether it is the understanding the family setup. So different things that you read up on. But I must say that Hannah is my, my go-to when it comes to family therapy. 
Mm. I, I love it when practitioners actually show us the book. You know, it almost like makes it very real. It's something real, which is very cool. Especially if it's one of those really big books, you know, uh, which that seems to be um, very cool. I, I think we'll link to that in the show notes when we when we do transcribe it, so everyone has that as a resource. Um, leading on from that question, and again, it wasn't in the brief, but you know, I got the feeling from many, especially psychologists, that always say they normally refer their clients to an app or something like that, and they wish like their clients had this tool. Is there something around that that you wished? you know, from a family point of view that you have. The one that kind of screams to mind for me is like maybe like a scheduling app, you know, that says, you know, this is family time and you almost like put it in. Is there anything that's, that seems to, you, you know, it's normally like a recommendation you normally give to your clients, you know, for, and say, don't forget to do this. But, you know, if there was a, if there was a, a way to do that, you know, it could be cards or whatever that is. Um, does anything spring to mind? I think... Something like a, a scheduling app that you mentioned now is great. There's so many new apps, you know, for specific things. So, for example, if it is a family where multiple members have ADHD and they struggle with organizing and prioritizing, something like that would work really well. Um, and again, case specific. So, if it is that there's autism in the family, having an app that can actually assist with not only understanding the diagnosis, but also putting things in place, like a visual, um, you know, a schedule or whatever the case might be. Um, and then I think something for me is definitely understanding each other's languages, whether it is your love language or your, your then obviously resulting into behavior language. So I really like uh, the family also to do that little assessment in terms of how do we understand showing love? How do we give love and how do we accept it? Because uh, that that's also often really important to understand, you know, how does mom actually show me that she loves me? She shows it by packing my lunch. She shows it by doing this. So often kids would say to me, you know, my parents don't spend time with me. And then the parents' answer is, but I do your homework with you. I do this with you. I do that with you. So, yeah, I think understanding um, the different meaning of time and the different meaning of how we show love and just to understand each other. You know, if we could have that on an app um, just as a reminder or to understand each other better, that will be really, really great. So, yeah, I think those would be my top two. Okay, that's cool. You know, I always have this idea of like, you know, the mood diary. You know, like, so, you know, like to tell you how you're feeling during the day. And I think, you know, as a, as a practitioner, to be able to see that visually must be amazing. You know, like to, to say, okay, so how many times did you get completely stressed out this week? And then you know as well, you know, whether it's working or not. And I think with that, but you mentioned a really cool resource now, which I also think is part of, you know, the life skills we should have gotten, uh, which was the five, you know, the five love languages, like to understand that from every single person. You know, whether that's in a you know corporate setting or it's in a personal setting, obviously in a personal setting it makes more sense. But it's important to know that to understand the other person, because there's no uh, you know, there's no clear way to do that because no one is alike. You know, in that case, yeah. To show the love that someone needs or how they need us to show it and that there needs to be a bit of a compromise you know and and you know also communication you you mentioned it now you know certain apps for communication is amazing especially if you have teenagers that don't can't do it verb that don't want to do it verbally or that don't 
again, I'm referring to a high-functioning autistic client that I had. She wrote letters to her parents and they saw it as, you know, negative. Why does she not want to talk to us? What are we doing wrong? But it was amazing for her because she's actually sharing, you know. So it would be awesome to use communication apps, you know, to like have that mood regulation where you say, you did this, mom. It made me feel angry, but I understand what I did wrong, you know, kind of thing. So if there's, if, if verbal communication is not easy, for someone giving them the tool because then once we've accomplished that we can work work towards verbal communication and for some it might not be easy it might always be a challenge but yeah apps like that would be amazing meditation apps or apps where where, where family members can just wind down and do yoga together or do certain activities together definitely very very helpful and there's many of those apps mm, yeah I was also thinking of something like, a, you know, like ratio experience, you know, after the family time, like if every single family member says, you know, like, a, you know, like, I wonder how that went. And like the teenager would be, yeah, that was okay. <laughs> you know, like and the mom and dad are like, wow, that was like the best ever. <laughs> you know, something like that would be very cool, I think. Yeah. Um, but again, it takes us away from the experience. But um, I do want to wrap up now. I think we uh, over time a bit. But uh, I just I'll just ask you, Leander. I mean, obviously, from family therapy, you know, like I try, you know, we try to get the brief done as best as we can, trying to cover everything that we think it would be useful. But is there anything that 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 we should have asked you that we didn't? I think we covered we covered all bases. Um, I think a final thought from my side would be that family therapy therapy can be really helpful, um, and people should not see it as an attack. That we're going to sit in a in a setting and you know a parent or a child is going to feel bombarded or attacked because they are the reason why you know family therapy um, is necessary. But that it's really a very helpful um, and and non judgmental space where everyone can be heard and where communication and family bonding can really be strengthened because ultimately the family should be the safe space and it should be a, um, a really great environment where anyone can kind of, that can be your go-to to know because ultimately that's what humans we, we want. We want to feel accepted. And if the people who love you so much, if you don't feel accepted by them and if you don't feel safe with them, it really causes challenges later on in life. So don't underestimate the value and the importance of the family okay thanks so much for saying that thanks so much for your time i know you're really busy and stuff like that but uh, you know thanks so much for making time for us and thanks for doing this and a pleasure and thank you for you guys for for setting the platform and providing the platform i think it's amazing and you're very exciting that we get to talk about these things and create awareness so thank you Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.